0: Good evening, everybody. We're glad that you're here. This is the halfway mark through our seminar. We're dealing tonight with chapter 8, because we're not going in according to the chapters. We're going according to the kings and when they ruled. Before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us and guide us. And Lord, as we enter into this study tonight, fill us and show us your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As we begin tonight, we want to do a review of chapter 7, just a few of the highlights. I'm not going to go to it in detail. You can look at your handouts, which will go into greater detail. But notice that Daniel uses a principle. The technical name is recapitulation. Actually, what it means is repeat and expand. Now, people who don't understand that will come up with some interesting concepts in trying to interpret the book of Daniel. But he repeats what he said before and adds more detail, then repeats and adds more detail. Daniel 2 is the great overview. That's the grandfather of all the prophecies in Daniel. It gives us a broad outline of the history of the world. Then Daniel 7 comes along, and Daniel 7 starts to fill in some detail. Tonight, Daniel 8 is going to fill in more detail. Now, chapter 7 is actually the pinnacle of the book of Daniel. Why? Because in chapter 7, up to this point, we were talking about different empires coming and going. We were talking about historical things. When you get to chapter 7, he starts introducing this little horn power that comes up. Now, when we get to chapter 8, we find that he's kind of brushing aside the political empire, and now he starts to drill in on this little horn power and expand. Now again, he's going to repeat, but he's going to now start dwelling on prophecy more than history on this. So there's a change that's beginning to develop. That doesn't mean he'll get away from history entirely, not at all. But that's why it's considered a high point. We find that this chapter, chapter 7, takes us up to the time of the judgment. So the judgment is before us. We have left history, now we're moving into eschatology or last day events. Look in chapter 7 and you'll find that he introduces a religio-political system that would oppose God's people and his work all the way up to the time of the judgment. And he will oppose the power of God. So that's a quick review of chapter 7. As we approach chapter 8... We find that there are different Bible writers address this little horn power as it's developing in different ways. For instance, we find that Daniel refers to this power that comes up as the little horn because it came up among the, it was a, a, really a government that came up among other governments and ripped up some in the process So he calls it the little horn. Now John, he refers to the same power in similar terms, only he refers to it as the Antichrist. And when we get to Paul, Paul refers to him as the man of lawlessness, and he also refers to him as the wicked one, okay, and as we, of course Satan is the ultimate wicked one, but he is wicked in that he is against the law. Now I want you to notice something here. The introduction in Paul here of the word lawlessness. This power, this little horn power that comes up is really at war with the law of God as we will see as it develops. Let's take a quick survey of a few of these texts. In 1 John 3, 4 it says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth on also the law, for sin is transgression of the law. So what is sin? Sin is trespassing on the law of God. So if you are observing the law of God, then you're not trespassing, you see. Some people say, well, the law was done away with, nailed to the cross. Maybe the ceremonial law was, but don't you dare nail the Ten Commandments to that law, because without the Ten Commandments, we don't know what sin is. And I could steal your wallet if it's been nailed to the cross while you're getting bent out of shape, you see. And people wonder when preachers preach that the law has been nailed to the cross, then the preachers are wondering, why is there so much abortion going on? Why should there be? You just nailed thou shalt not kill to the cross, you see. So we need to be careful what we're nailing to the cross and so we have a clear understanding of it. Look at Second John 7. And it says here, for many deceivers are entered into the world. Now, there are people coming into the world and into the church, and it says, who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. People who say, oh, well, Jesus did not take on human flesh. He was just a spirit. That came from the Gnostics. That was something that also came in through the Nicolaitans that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. And this is not Christian theology. This is pagan philosophy. And so this is what John was grappling with in his day. And he says, anybody who says that Christ did not come in the flesh, he is not only a deceiver, he's an antichrist. Okay, look at 1 John 4, 3 and every spirit that confesseth not that jesus christ is come in the flesh is not of god so i don't care how how uh, handsome or how charming or charismatic a person is it's what they are teaching about christ that makes a big difference whether they are on the side of christ or an antichrist it says and this is that spirit of antichrist Whereof ye have heard that it should come? And even now already is it in the world. This spirit of Antichrist doubting Jesus and his taking on human flesh, it was already in the church and in the world in the time of John. And so John had to fight that, and his gospel begins right off by saying that Christ was the word that was in the beginning. So he's connecting with the uh, divine Christ. Those who say that Christ is not divine, that is a spirit of Antichrist too. Because not only to say he's not human, but to say he's not divine. Because John in his very first uh, chapter he talks about the divinity of Christ and how the word of God was manifest in the flesh and walked among us. Okay, 1 Timothy one nine, it says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. You don't make laws thou shalt not steal for a man who's honest. You make laws and penalties for a man who's not. And, for the lawless and disobedient. So this idea of lawlessness and disobedience, this was entering into the church. It, also from the Gnostics we got the idea, well, it doesn't matter what I do in the flesh because I'm a spiritual person and God knows my heart. And because God knows my heart, it doesn't matter the way I live my life, I'm still going to be saved you ever run across that philosophy today? Yeah. And we run into this a lot that uh, whenever people say, God knows my heart. Yeah, he does. He says, your heart is evil beyond belief. Our hearts are wicked beyond belief. We don't understand our heart. He does. That's why he set boundaries. And notice he says that those who are disobedient, for they are ungodly, and he starts listing a number of these ungodly things that they will do. For the murderers, it says unholy and profane. Profane means common, cheap, okay? Uh, Murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. Uh, For manslayers, for whoremongers, for those that defile themselves with mankind. We would call that today homosexuality. For men stealers, those are kidnappers, and you might even say it's trafficking in sex uh, for liars. You notice it's interesting. My mother said, you don't call anybody a liar. But John says that if a person says that he loves the Lord and yet he's doing just the opposite, he's a liar if he doesn't keep the commandments of God. Uh, who For perjured persons perjured is means you you promise to tell the truth but you're you're telling a lie and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine or teaching people don't want to hear doctrine today they want warm fuzzies but it says that we are to look to sound teachings according to the glorious gospel of the blessed god which was committed to my trust paul says that he was given A commission to preach the truth, and he intended to do it. Look what it says in 2 Thessalonians 2 5 through 12. I'm not going to read it all, but from 7 on it says For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be, or wicked one, be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and will destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and in all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Why? Because they received not the love of the truth. They may have received the truth, but they didn't love it. You see, they, they look for reason to discard the truth that they might be saved. The truth is there that we might be saved, but if we don't love the truth, we're going to find a way around it and end up being lost. Look at number 12, 11. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusions that they should believe a lie. It is possible for you to believe a lie. You can talk yourself into believing a lie. And many will be deceived. Whenever we turn away from the word of God, we will, either willingly or unwillingly, we will reach out and start believing something that is not true. Look at number 12. That they all might be damned who believed not the truth. But why? They had pleasure in unrighteousness. In plain words, they enjoyed sin. And for that reason, they set truth aside. Now, let's face it. Your human nature loves sin. Right? If you didn't, why do you do the things you do? Right? I remember a story about a fella who used to bang his head against the wall. Somebody asked, why do you keep hitting your head against that cement wall? He says, because it feels so good when I stop. You know, why do we do things that we must be getting some kind of pleasure out of it? I've had people who were dying of lung cancer or they had cancer of the throat and yet they still stick a cigarette in that little hole in their throat and still smoke. Of course, we had a neighbor who was on oxygen and also smoked. And I sometimes I... I I had to pray that she wouldn't get her right hand and her left hand mixed up. You know, so you got to be careful. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. For the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with all his mighty angels. When's he going to do that? At the return of Christ. In flaming fire, taking what? Vengeance, that's called judgment. Vengeance on them that know not God. Now, there are those who know God and his truth, but they choose not to observe it or believe it, and they end up receiving vengeance, and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a faith-works relationship. When we get into chapter 1, I know that was a bit of a lengthy introduction, we start finding different movements coming into the church. And chapter 8 starts to deal with these. As we begin chapter 8, verse 1, notice what it says, in the third year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, if you look at the chapter before that, in chapter 7, it says, in the first year of Belshazzar. So chapter 7 uh, comes before it, chapter 8. That's why we're going to this order. Okay? And it, it says, Belshazzar, in the kingdom of Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, to Daniel, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. Now, what's he saying? He's saying the vision I had in chapter 8 elaborates on the earlier vision I had. So what's he talking about? He's saying eight is connected to seven. He's making that bridge between them. This is further elaboration on chapter seven. Now he's going to repeat some of the stuff that he gave Daniel in chapter seven, but he's going to use it differently probably so Daniel wouldn't get bored or something. Daniel already understood what the lion and the leopard and all stood for. Now he's going to start using some of those animals again, but he's going to have a different kind of animals. Look at chapter 8, verse 2. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was in Shushan, in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision, and I was by the river Uli. Now, What's he talking about? First off, where is Belshazzar? Belshazzar is in Babylon. And Daniel said, I saw myself over in Persia. You see the Babylonian kingdoms behind him because Belshazzar was about to be dethroned. So he's already looking ahead. When it talks about latter days, that means from now forward. Okay, And he's already looking ahead to the next empire. Shushan was the capital of the Persian Empire. Actually, it had two capitals. There was Persopolis, and there was also Shushan. And one was where the king lived, one was where the political power was located. And in this vision, there are some who say, well, he was actually literally there. Or there are those who say, no, he was there in vision. It's like saying, oh, I understand that over in Saginaw they're having a a party going on. And I'm over here in Midland. Oh, yes, but I'm with you in spirit. You see? And so in vision, he may have been over there rather than physically transported there. Not only this, too, but if you look at the map that's on the, the board, you'll see where Elam is located on the map. Here's Babylonia. There's Ur the Chaldees. And this was the Babylonian Empire. The Persian Empire was next door. This is the area called Elam. It will later stretch down the side of the Persian Gulf more. It is now located in what is Called the modern nation of Iran, but it was ancient persia and if you see the Persian Gulf on here, uh, you'll see the um, Bushar uh, nuclear power plant that sometimes is in the the news that's in Elam. so this was the area that where the Elamites were a part of that broader empire. If you look on this slide, you'll see that basically Shushan is almost straight east from Babylon. So if the Persians are going to attack the Babylonians, they're going to have to come from the east to the west, right? All right, and you can see in this Yulai River is really a tributary of the Tigris River. So this gives you a little bit of a bearing there. Now, the palace at Shushan, this is where the Persian kings uh, had their throne. And there's a reenactment of it, a picture of it. And so in Daniel 3, then I lifted up mine eyes and I saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. Mm, Two horns. That's interesting. And The two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher came up last. Now, how many arms were on the image in Daniel 2? Two arms, right? The Medes and the Persians. Okay? The Persian Empire began to gain ascendancy. So, you find the elevation of one side... When we looked at the last one in Daniel 7, we saw a bear. And the bear had one shoulder that was elevated above the other. And so he's recapitulating. He's covering the old territory with new symbols. But notice the animal is different. This time he's using a ram. Now, usually you don't see empires characterized by rams and goats. Why? Well, I mean, we got bears and lions, but rams and goats? Rams and goats were animals that were used in the sanctuary. So you see, he's taking a turn here. Before the other animals, those beasts represented governments. But now, what he's talking about is how these different empires affect the spiritual uh, aspects of God's people. And each of these empires, by the way, persecuted God's people at different times. So we find that the ram with the elevated horn is the same as the Medo-Persian bear that ripped up three empires in the course of its rising. Now the Persian ram, in vision, Persia symbolically represented as a ram with two horns. And we've already mentioned about one rising uh, later than the other. We find that isolated columns and masonry remnants are all that remains of Persopolis, which is one of the capitals of the Persian Empire. And thirty three acre palace palace complex has been found there. It was that palace was built by Darius I in five twenty BC. Later it would be burned by Alexander the Great in three hundred thirty BC. They depict the Persian king as riding on a war chariot he was all you know mighty conqueror going forth to to battle now a certain object in the ancient jewish sanctuary had four horned altars as you look in those texts exodus 27 to first kings to 28 notice here that was the central object in the worship system it was the altar it was the altar of burnt offering. It's where the sacrifice was made. And this horned altar was found in Megiddo. And it dates to the 10th or the 9th century BC. And they have uncovered this. And you can see the four horns. Moses talks about the altar burnt offering that they took in the wilderness. Of course, theirs, they could take it apart. It was so that they could uh, make it mobile. This one is made out of stone that they found. So some of these old altars still exist. If you look at verse 3, 4, and 20, notice that there's an angel who comes and interprets this vision. And he says right openly in verse 20 that the ram represents Medo-Persia. So the Bible interprets itself, if you let it. And here's a a good illustration of that. And the two horns, the higher coming up last, these, of course, represent the Medo-Persian Empire and how one would dominate over the other. Now, the interesting part is it also says in this prophecy that this eastern kingdom did, in fact, push westward and northward and southward. Why? Where was it going? It was going west, into Babylon. Remember Shushan's over here, Babylon's over here. It pushes over and takes over the Babylonian Empire. Then it goes up north to the Lydian Empire, and then it will come down south to the Egyptian Empire as it expands. By the way, this idea of it pushing westward, it really pushed westward. It even pushed into Greece And later on, Alexander will be very upset with the Persians for having done that. And he's going to get his one-upsmanship. And he's going to come with extra anger and vigor and fierceness as he comes after the Persians. Look at verse 4. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beasts might stand before him neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will, and he became great. So the Persian Empire began to expand, and it was powerful. Nothing could stop it. Verse 5, and as I was considering, behold. Now, whenever you see the word behold, there's a change of scene. A different act is coming on. He's telling you to look Look at something different. And he says, while I'm looking at this ram, all of a sudden my attention is drawn and there's a goat coming. Here's the ram over here in the east and here's a goat over here in the west. And he's heading east. Now if one empire is going east and one empire is going west, what's going to happen? They're going to get caught in the middle, right? And guess who gets caught in the middle? God's people will get caught in the middle. And notice it says that behold, and he goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and he touched not the ground and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. He was moving so fast he didn't even touch the ground. Now, when I was a kid I was a preteen. My grandfather who was a veterinarian had a little farm in Tawana, Virginia. And we used to like to go down there. But my grandfather liked to keep bees. And he had a beehive that was right near the front porch. And the bees didn't bother us. We didn't bother the bees. Well, my sister was sitting down on the porch one day with my little cousin. And our dog went over and got too curious with the bees and start sniffing around there. Well, the bees didn't appreciate that. And immediately, they all start coming out and stinging the dog. Well, what does a dog do when something like that happens? Immediately, wants to be comforted and share its good tidings. So the dog turned around and headed right toward the porch. And when my sister saw the dog coming, they were swinging back and forth on this porch swing. And I'm not kidding you, I was standing inside the door, which was at the other end, and my sister said, Open that door! And I quickly opened the door, and she jumped off the swing with my little cousin in her hand, and she flew, and I'm not kidding you, she didn't even touch the ground till she was halfway across that porch. And she got in and slammed the door before the dog got into the house. And poor little dog, it had to go running the other direction because it didn't get any help from us. But she was moving so fast, she didn't even touch the ground. This is an illustration of aliquity or swiftness. And so when this Greek power, which would follow next, comes after the Persian ram, He's moving so fast it's what Hitler called blitzkrieg or lightning warfare. And notice the one horn right between the eyes. That's the one that breaks something down. That's the point of entry. And this was in the last chapter represented by a leopard which is a very fast cat with four wings which was twice as fast as the Babylonians, which only had two wings on the lion. And notice that there were four empires that came out of Alexander's. And it said that that horn would break off. And not only did it conflict with and hit the uh, Persian ram head on, but it stomped it into the ground. Look at verses 5 through 8, verses 21 and 22. The hego... He goat, according to the angel, symbolized Grisha, as found in verse 21. The great horn being the first king, that is, Alexander the Great, the Macedonian leader who forged out the Greek empire. Alexander came from the west and swiftly struck the Persian forces. Within a few years after his death, the empire became divided into four kingdoms, just as predicted. Verse 6. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had there seen standing before the river. And he ran upon him in the fury of his power. He came at him full force with everything that he had and knocked the Persians right off their, their feet. Verse 7, And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with what? What is collar? It's not that thing you wear around your neck. What is collar? A person who's choleric is what? A person who's bossy, for one thing, but they sometimes have a short temper, right? Well, Alexander, the word collar symbolizes anger or force. And so he comes at. This beast, and it says he smote the ram, he hit it, and he broke his two horns. The Medes and the Persians were both broken off by him, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and then what did he do? He stamped upon him, you know he he marched all over his kingdom, wiping out any evidence of the Persian Empire. And there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. You can see on this map that I have on the screen, you can see Alexander was all over the place. You look on the map here, he comes from Macedonia through Asia Minor, and then he comes down here through Damascus to Jerusalem, goes into Egypt, comes back up across the Arabian Desert, into Babylon and takes all this area in. He goes all the way over to the Indus River and the Hindu Kush Mountains and all this area he took in, conquering as he went. He wanted to go to China, but his men said, we've had enough. And Alexander felt bad, but he had to give in. Daniel 8.8. Therefore, the he-goat waxed very great. Not just great, but very great. And Alexander today is still well-known in the world. And his influence is still with us. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Now, Alexander was an intelligent man. He was well-schooled. His tutor... You may have heard of his tutor before. His tutor was his slave. His tutor was a slave called Aristotle. Did you ever hear of Aristotle? Right. Aristotle was actually Alexander's slave. But he was a great philosopher and thought scientifically. And he's the one that tutored Alexander the Great. So Alexander was no uh, just barbarian. He had a good education, but he was also a shaker and a mover. Okay? And notice it says, there came a four from the four winds of the heavens. The four winds of the heaven North, south, east, west. We get the word news comes from that. And notice Alexander's empire was broken into four parts. Who were these generals? Where did they go? Now, you'll notice here in this map, there's a fifth empire that's tucked away here. You see, over here, Cassander, Cassander takes over this part near Greece. This is the area that Cassander, one of Alexander's generals, takes. Over here, toward the Black Sea, that would take in Romania and all that. We find that that would fall to Lysimachus. And over here, this part into Asia and uh, the Middle East, the Fertile Crescent, that falls under Seleucus. And then down here in Egypt, Ptolemy would take that and so they divided it but what about the green well let me go back to that a minute you'll see that the green was a fellow by the name of Antigone and Antigone was actually King Cyrus's grandfather and King Cyrus when his grandfather died he inherited that but that eventually would develop into the Lydian Empire that would be torn up later. Okay? As we look at verse 9, and out of one of them came forth a little horn. Now, remember in chapter 7 it talked about a little horn? He's fascinated with this little horn when we leave chapter 7, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land, okay? We find that as this power grows, it goes down into the pleasant land. Now, the pleasant land is generally referred to as the holy land, okay? But we find that there's also a heavenly pleasant land, and you'll see that a transition will take place in verse nine, twenty three through twenty five it says, at the latter time or toward the end of the divided Hellenistic or Greek kingdom, the angel declared that a little horn would arise. Now who is this little horn? Some have suggested that this was a symbol for Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the Fourth, the Seleucid King. He was a Syrian and He would come down and invade Palestine in the 2nd century BC and he disrupted the Jewish worship system. He hated the Jews and he wanted to stamp out anything and everything that had to do with the Jews or Judaism. There are others who say that this little horn power represented Rome that would develop and move into the Holy Land and take control of it. And this is where the reformers came from, Martin Luther and the others. They went along with this, not Antiochus. When we started this seminar, I mentioned that there was a counter-reformation theology that came up called preterism. Preterism said that these prophecies, talking about this little horn power, are all in the past, therefore they don't apply. In plain words, there's no such thing as prophecy. That's what it's basically saying. And then there's futurists who say, no, it's all in the future. Those who are preterists say, that's Antiochus Epiphanes. But the historicists, of which the reformers were following the historicist approach, they started to look at the description of this little horn, and they said, you know, there's a fellow sitting in the city of Rome who seems to match a lot of these prophecies. And so this is the reason why the church came up with those two counter-Reformation theologies. Many people today are following the prophecies of futurism, not realizing with their secret rapture and, and all this, not realizing they're really following counter-Reformation Jesuit theology. To throw them off of the historical approach that was used by the uh, reformers. And notice, it's not hard to show that Antiochus did not fill the bill of this prophecy. And the material I gave you, I think, goes into that even more in detail. So, the reformers considered this to be Rome because Rome was the next power that would succeed after Greece. Rome had two parts, remember? It had two legs in the image of Daniel 2. And so there was the papal Rome and the pagan Rome. And the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. And so we find that this would uh, fit the um, specifications better. So this fellow Antiochus IV, indeed he was an Antichrist, but he was not the Antichrist referred to in the little horn. He's the one that burned the pig on the altar. This is the reason why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah was when they drove Antiochus Epiphanes and uh, the, um, the Greeks or the Syrians back into Syria and liberated Judea during the time of a group of people called the Maccabeans. And So they had a candlestick. They were cleansing the sanctuary. Notice the comparison here. They were cleansing the sanctuary after getting rid of the pagan, all the other pagan influences. And they only had enough oil to last for one day for the candlesticks. But you know, it's like that story told about the woman who only had enough oil in her vessel for one day. It turned out that there was a miracle and that oil lasted until she had enough to fill a a whole bunch of vessels. And we find that the candlestick, they had enough oil to last for eight days and that was sufficient for them to make new oil. And so we find that this uh, Hanukkah develops out of trying to get rid of the influence of Antiochus Epiphanes. So here are a few points why people look to Rome as fulfillment of this instead of Antiochus. Number one, chapters two and seven point to Rome as the successor of Greece. And in turn, they show that Rome in a divided and modified state succeeded is succeeded by the kingdom of Christ. So Rome is between Greeks and the coming of Christ, setting up his kingdom. The little horn of chapter 8 fits this pattern exactly. For it follows Greece and is finally supernaturally destroyed or broken without hands. Point number two. We should expect both Greece, uh, which became uh, very great, and the little horn which became exceeding great. That's even better than very great. It's exceeding great to surpass, in some way, the Medo-Persians, who only became great. So you got great, greater, and greatest. And Rome fit this specification, while Antiochus falls short. He didn't even last long enough. Number three, Rome did extend its empire to the south, Egypt, and East, Macedonia and Greece, and the Pleasant Land, Palestine, just as the prophecy predicted. Point number four, only Rome stood up against the prince of the host, the prince of princes. And we find that the prince is none other than Jesus Christ. And it was Rome who was there to kill Jesus when he was born, and it was Rome that would be there to to kill him on the cross. It was not the Assyrians who did that. So, against him and his people, as well as the sanctuary, the Romans burned the sanctuary, right? The physical sanctuary. That was done by the pagan Romans. But we find that there's another sanctuary. There's a heavenly sanctuary that is attacked by spiritual Rome. Claiming powers that belong only to the tabernacle in heaven. And we find here that the papal Rome effectively obscures the priesthood and the mediatorial work of Christ in behalf of his people in the heavenly sanctuary. It substitutes an earthly priesthood for a heavenly priesthood. Why go to the heavenly priest for forgiveness when I can just go to a human being, you see? Look at verse 10. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts of the stars to the ground, and it stamped upon them. Now, we just talked about being stamped upon, the Greeks stamped upon the Romans. It also says in chapter 7 that the Roman beast would stomp on anybody got in his way. And so we find here that's a sign of persecution, the stars being the religious leaders of the church, and they would be stomped into the ground or persecuted. And it tells us in history that from 168 BC to 476 AD, the Roman power was in control. In Daniel 7, it's represented by this nondescript beast with the ten horns. So it's talking about the same power. The nondescript beast was political Rome and pagan Rome, whereas the little horn is the spiritual Rome that came up later. The Roman Empire is still alive today. It just has morphed. It's changed into the little horn Rome as opposed to the uh, political Rome that used to be. Look at verses 10 through 12. The little horn, according to Daniel, was to wage warfare of a distinctly religious nature. Its energies were bent on bringing to naught the sanctuary and its services. So we find that it is now expanded and its horn is now trying to reach up to heaven. Look at verse 11. Yea, he magnified himself, even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of the sanctuary was cast down. What's it mean by that? Where are our sins individually forgiven? They're forgiven in the holy place. Not the most holy place, the holy place. That's where the individual sins are taken care of. The most holy places where the corporate sins are taken care of. They use different animals, you see, for these services than what we had seen earlier. And so we find the sanctuary, as it shows in the diagram. You have here the four horned altar of burnt offerings. Remember, the, the lamb would not be killed inside this compound. The lamb would be killed outside, and then it would be brought in. Christ was slain on the earth, and then his blood, or the sacrifice that he, he made, was then taken with him when he went to heaven. But we find here there's the altar of sacrifice where the Lamb of God is offered. Here is the laver. The laver is where the priest washes his hands and feet before he goes into the sanctuary. And this actually symbolizes baptism. You, you're washing away your sins. You're not, but God is. Then we enter into the holy place where forgiveness is found. The two piles of bread on the side of the north. That's where Satan wanted to elevate himself. This is the throne of God in that part of the sanctuary. Directly across is the candlestick representing the Holy Spirit that gives light and zeal to our Christian experience. Then here is the altar of incense. The prayers going up. And so day after day, even the common priest could go back and forth in here ministering. Because this is where forgiveness was found. And if you've ever noticed that uh, in some churches they will talk about the priest forgiving your sins and everything, but they don't talk too much about the judgment. And you can be sure, Satan, Satan would like to have, sit on the side of the north here and have people come to him for forgiveness, but Satan does not want to face judgment. You see? That's why the most holy place is so important because this is where th- things culminate. So we find here that from the time of the cross until the end of the 2300-year prophecy, we find in and out every day. Well, actually, even before then, from the time of Moses on, the priests went in and out of here ministering. And it wasn't until the end of the 2300-year prophecy That the judgment begins and Christ goes into the most holy place. You see. And we'll touch on that later. Let's look at verse 12. And in host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. Ah, by reason of transgression. Now, what transgression, another word for transgression is lawlessness, right? Right? You're transgressing the law of God. And it cast down the truth of God to the ground. And it practiced and prospered. All right, how was the law attacked? Well, for one thing, the commandment with regard to idols was cast out. Also, the Sabbath was changed. Sabbath wasn't changed. They thought to change it. You see, from Saturday to Sunday for which there is absolutely no scriptural authority, in spite of the fact that they may try to twist some of the text, but it's not difficult to show that there's no scriptural authority for it. And noted uh, authorities of various denominations agree to that. So we find that they would practice it. They would practice their, their priestcraft of forgiving people even changing the communion into the body and blood of Christ, which is actually idolatry, you see. And they would practice this, and they would prosper. Anybody got in their way? Went to the stake, or went to the lions, whichever. Look at verse 813. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto the certain saint, which spoke. How long? Now that's the key. That's what this whole portion is about. How long shall the vision concerning the daily sacrifice be? In plain words, Daniel is fascinated with this. How long will this Antichrist power have to trample the forgiveness of sins and God's people and their spiritual welfare? and the heavenly sanctuary underfoot before they're judged for this, you see. And this is where this chapter moves away from the earthly political powers and is now talking about something that's happening in heaven here and the transgression of desolation. When something is desolate, it's left in ruins, okay? Okay. And to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. In plain words, how long will this Antichrist power be able to stomp all over the uh, Bible teaching of the sanctuary? So this is the reason why the sanctuary message is introduced. And you'll find most Protestant denominations really don't study the sanctuary. Matter of fact, I was a member of two Protestant churches and I never even heard of the sanctuary till I was in college, you see. But yet the sanctuary message is so important for us to understand where we're at in the scope of time. So what is the sanctuary that is so closely related to the restoration of God's people? A thousand years before Daniel foresaw the final and ultimate cleansing of the sanctuary. God instructed the Israelites to build a place wherein he could dwell. It's always been God's desire to be with his people. To understand Daniel 8, 13 and 14, we must understand something of that earthly sanctuary and its services. It was not that God desired to confine himself to an earthly sanctuary made with hands, but He wished to use it as an object lesson for Israel to teach spiritual truths about the plan of salvation. Notice what the underlying portion of this says. In the sanctuary, God showed the ultimate purpose of the gospel. What is the ultimate purpose of the gospel? Gospel means good news. What's the whole purpose of Christ's coming and Preaching to us. It was to tell us that we can be reconciled with God, right? That our sins would be forgiven and that we could have eternal life. Where does that take place? It takes place in the heavenly sanctuary, of which He left the earth to go there to be our high priest to apply His sacrifice on our behalf. That He might dwell in the hearts of His people. He sends the Holy Spirit, who is the vicar of Christ on earth. And that is a title that belongs to the Holy Spirit, not to human beings. And so in the services associated with the sanctuary, he pointed out how he would bring this about through the work of reconciliation. Now notice here that God commanded that the priests and the Uh, sanctuary performed various acts every day throughout the year. Notice that they would offer in the morning and the evening, they would offer a lamb as the sacrifice representing the lamb of God that would take away the sins of the people. And people were taught to trust in the coming lamb of God for their forgiveness of their ultimate sin. The forgiveness was not in the priests. The forgiveness was in the sacrifice In the Lamb, you see. There's a change of emphasis that would come in that Paul and John talked about. Already there was a change coming in their day. It wasn't until the time of, uh, uh, what's his name, Constantine, that it really got formalized. But it was building toward that. Now to continue the service of the sanctuary, it culminated each year in what is called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, mentioned in Leviticus 16, 23 and uh, 27 through 32. We find the Day of Atonement is symbolic of the judgment. And this was a day of judgment. It was a solemn time. People's sins had to be forgiven before they reached the judgment. And our sins have to be forgiven before the great judgment, right? There are those who say, well, after I die, I'll have my sins forgiven. Uh Uh-uh. That's past at that point. It doesn't fit in with the biblical model. Those who with repentant hearts afflicted their souls on this day had their sins blotted out. Now, what's the converse of that? If they did not afflict their souls, then their sins were not blotted out, and they were not a part of God's people. They were cast out and cut off from the people. This symbolism carries over. Now, Moses' pattern of the sanctuary that he built after God's dwelling place, which is in heaven, it's a model of it. So there's two sets of rituals. There's the daily forgiveness of sin. And then there's the yearly uh, service that took place. Each pointed to two phases of Christ's priestly ministry in heaven. And if a priest can forgive my sins, there's no need for Christ coming back again. There's no need for judgment because I'm already forgiven. I'm right with God. It, It nullifies this. It nullifies my having to take it to Christ. The daily services and the earthly sanctuary symbolize Christ's continual ministry for his people. The high priest on the day of atonement represents Christ's intercession for his people during the judgment. Collectively, the sins of the world, the people of all generations, those are the ones that he's interceding for. He's not interceding for the wicked, He's not saying, oh, I I hope they'll repent. They've had their chance to repent or not repent by accepting him. As Christ appears before the Father in the judgment, he goes through the books. We go through the books with him, accounting, you know, to settle the accounts. And so, whether or not sins have been confessed and forgiven and repented of, according to the explanation Daniel later received, Considering this vision, only a portion of the 2,300 days pertained to the Jews and to Jerusalem. So there was a portion of that 2,300 years that would apply to the Jews. That's why Jesus said, don't go to the Gentiles, go to the Jews first. And then later on, they would expand out to the Gentiles accordingly because the Jew first and then the Gentile He was trying to reach his own people first. And the ones we should be reaching are our own family before we start reaching out to the neighbors, even today. And so there would have to be a cleansing of the people prior to Christ's coming. Because judgment begins with the believers, judgment also begins with the dead believers, and then it moves to the living believers. The unbelievers, you don't have to worry about them. They they get judged at the end of the millennium. But at the beginning of the millennium, when Christ comes back again, he's going to gather up those who have had their sins forgiven, confessed and forgiven, and brought before the Father in the day of judgment, the day of judgment, and he accepts it. This is what it means when it says Christ will receive his dominion were a part of that dominion that he receives. You see, he is now given authority to come down and claim those that are his own. And so we find that there are texts that indicate in Ezekiel 4.6 and Numbers 14.34 symbolizes that this 2300-year prophecy really means 2,300 years, not days. And so, if we figure out when that starts, we can figure out when the judgment shall begin. According to the scripture in Daniel 9, which we haven't hit yet, verse 25, 457 BC would be the starting point. And if that's the starting point, and you account for the zero year, there's no zero year, so that would throw it over one more year, you take that and subtract it for 2,300, and it comes to 1843, 1844, with and without the zero year. And so it's interesting that even Martin Luther, back in the 1500s, the middle of the 1500s, he was asked, how long do you think it will be before the judgment begins? He says about 300 years. Now, Martin Luther was not being a prophet. Martin Luther was following the historicist approach. And from his calculations of Daniel, it should be the 1800s that the judgment would start, you see. And so you see how chapter 7 and chapter 8 are feeding off of each other. It's getting ready for a pre-advent judgment. It's getting the people ready For the coming of the Lord. Make straight the way in preparation for the Lord. Wasn't that what Elijah was supposed to do? For Christ's first coming? This is the same Elijah message that is to get us ready for the second coming. You see. The sanctuary types of the Hebrew people portray how Christ, our high priest, will minister for his people in the heavenly sanctuary judgment prior to his second coming. God himself also needs to be cleared of false accusations by Satan. And we are the witnesses to that. We find, too, that Daniel 7 and 8 disclose the wider perspective of a final outcome of the great moral controversy between good and evil. And so you can read These Times Magazine, pages 12 through 15, and we'll tell you more about that. So then, Daniel 14 says, And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, which are years, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, what sanctuary? Well, the sanctuary could mean the earth. It could also mean that tent in the wilderness. It could also mean my body temple. You see? And so we find that in the 1800s, they would try to figure out which temple is to be cleansed. Well, if the context, it can't be the the uh, temple in the wilderness because that's long gone. And the context does not lend credibility that it's talking about my body, Christ coming to my body. Therefore, they concluded that, aha, the sanctuary that's to be cleansed must mean that Christ is coming back to purify the earth with fire, you see. And so they were looking forward to the second coming of Christ to cleanse the earth with fire, but it wasn't referring to that because they had forgotten that there's a fourth use of the word sanctuary, and that's the one up in heaven. And so what we see is in 1844, the Father moves from the holy place to the most holy place and the Son moves in to the most holy place and follows him in. It's not talking about the coming to the earth, it's the coming to the Father in the most holy place for the judgment to begin so that the sanctuary in the heavenly courts could be cleansed. And there Christ stands as the high priest before the Father. And so as the chart shows, 2,300 years, starting from 457 to 1844. And notice the 70-week prophecy, because when we get in chapter 9, we're going to hit that prophecy again. It's a subdivision of the 2,300-year prophecy. And it's at the end of those 70 weeks or years, which calculate out seven days in a week, for 70 weeks, comes up to 490 years. The Jewish nation, which had more or less a monopoly on the gospel, now lose that monopoly. Not that the people were rejected, but as a nation they were rejected. They didn't own it. It was to go to the world. And we find that the Gentiles began to spread it too. So, that makes 1,810 years from the stoning of Stephen in 34 A.D. up to 1844. Okay, Daniel eight fifteen, And it came to pass, even I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought the meaning. Daniel didn't understand it. He was trying to figure it out. Then behold, again, the scene has changed. There stood before me as the appearance of a man... And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, that's that river over in Elam, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So apparently, he may have been looking at Christ and he says to Gabriel, you tell him what all this stuff means. So Gabriel is now the one who starts to explain it to him. This angel Gabriel is very interesting. He apparently is one of the covering cherubs. And Gabriel is charged with bringing the important messages in the Bible. Gabriel's the one who 600 years later will tell Mary she's going to have a little baby boy, you see. So Gabriel is a very significant uh, individual, Look at verse 17. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid. I think I'd be afraid too, because I'm sure this angel is quite tall, you know, and bright. And I was afraid, and I fell upon my face. And he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall a vision be. He's saying, Daniel, you're looking at something that's way beyond you. You're looking down 2,600 years in advance. And here we find that Daniel's trying to figure it out. He's getting an ulcer over it. He says, stop worrying about it. It's up ahead. You are just to record it. And after the resurrection and we're in the kingdom, we'll have another Daniel seminar and we'll let you you all get up and explain to Daniel what he was worrying about, okay? In 8.18 it says, Now as he was speaking unto me, Gabriel was, I was in a deep sleep. Notice that prophets oftentimes will be unconscious to what's happening around them. Upon my face toward the ground, and he touched me and set me upright. So the angel comes over and he stands up. And he said, Behold, I will make thee know What shall be in the last days of the indignation? At the time appointed, the end shall be. The time appointed. In plain words, we're looking ahead to 1844 and beyond. Now, the 2300-year prophecy is the longest prophecy in the Bible. After the 1844 prophecy was fulfilled and Uh, I mean, the 2300-year prophecy was fulfilled in 1844. There are no more time prophecies going beyond that. And because of that, he says, time shall be no more. Now, what does he mean? Time prophecies will be no more. From 1844 onward, we are moving into what the Bible refers to as the last days. Look at verse 20. Christ could come at any point from there on. It depends on the circumstances. Now, in verse 20, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Medes and the Persia. Okay, we've established that. Daniel understood it. He didn't spend a lot of time with it. 21, the rough goat is the king of Grisha, the first king. He understood that, even though it was still ahead of him. 23, and in the latter time, of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Dark sentences means that he will speak mysteries, like saying hocus corpus meum and changing mystically this body into the actual body and blood of a human being. You see, these are mysterious dark sentences, supernatural. Verse 24, and the power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. It's not because it's the Swiss Guard are so strong that the papacy is so powerful. It's because of his mind control over the spirits of people. And he shall destroy wonderfully. That doesn't mean a good wonderfully. That means a It's just fantastic how he's able to do this. And he shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. Many people are trusting in a false system for salvation, a system of works rather than a system of faith in Christ and his forgiveness. Verse 25, and through his policy also, he shall cause craft, priestcraft, He shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and he shall magnify himself the vicar of Christ on earth um, the Lord God the Pope etc. in his heart and by peace shall destroy many he'll lead them into a false state of security he shall also stand up against the prince of the princes by claiming powers that belong to Christ but he shall be broken without hand. So this power will still be in the world until the judgment. And verse 26, And the vision of the evening and the morning, that makes a full day, which was told is true. Wherefore, shut up the vision, for it shall be for many days. Daniel, stop worrying about it. I want you to seal the book. The book of Daniel is the only book in the Bible that was sealed. Many people say the book of Revelation is a sealed book. That contradicts the name of it. The book of Revelation opens the book of Daniel. It reveals the book of Daniel. That's why the language in Daniel and the language in the book of Revelation, they even use similar terms like uh, time times dividing of times and some of these other things. Revelation is to reveal what was shut in Daniel's time. Daniel was the beginning of a great future. But the book of Revelation is at the other end. It says, Now that we're down at the end of Earth's history, the end of time, I will now open the book and explain what Daniel saw. And so, verse 27 And I, Daniel, fainted. He was worn out and he was sick for quite a few days. Afterwards, I rose up and did the king's business. He went back to work. But I was astonished. I was amazed at what I had seen in that vision. But none understood it. Now, apparently, he was talking with other people. He was probably talking with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and saying, what does this stuff mean? And they said, I don't know. I have a sliced idea of what it means. So, not only Daniel, but his friends were probably pondering on this. And so in summary, we find that Daniel uses the principle of repeat and expand once again using different animals, this time in a spiritual realm more than in a uh, political realm. Daniel 7, it dealt more with the political empires, but the animals used referred to the spiritual sanctuary animals. Daniel is again fascinated by this little horn power that grew up, and it grew up to heaven It extended its power up into the heavens. The earthly and the heavenly sanctuary services are introduced with a time prophecy of 2300 years that brings us up to the beginning of the judgment, which is the great Yom Kippur that the Bible is referring to. And so you see how, once again, he starts over, he expands on Daniel 2, he expands on Daniel 7 and drops in more detail. Now, in later prophecies, he's going to fill in even more. And so with that, it's time for your quiz, and you have your quiz papers in front of you. Okay? I know I'm just on time that we're supposed to be out of here, so let's uh, hasten through this a little. Number one, the ram represented what power? Don't tell me, just write it down. Okay? The he-goat represented what power you can put the the nation there rather than the individual the little horn represented babylon true or false number 4 daniel 8 and 9 actually are connected true or false who number 5 who was the angel who explained the prophecy to daniel and then number six, the 2300 years began in what year? How many of you think you got them right? Oh, we'll see if you're a false prophet or not. Okay, here's the answer The ram was the Medo Persians' empire, okay? The he goat was the Greeks or Greece or Greece. The little horn power represented Babylon, all right? Uh, it didn't represent Babylon, the little horn represented the Roman power, okay? Daniel 8 and 9 are, are actually connected. Yes, because you've got the 2300-year prophecy in 8. In chapter 9, you're going to get the 70-week prophecy, which begins at the same time. And then, number 5, who was the angel who explained the prophecies to Daniel? Gabriel. And the 2300-year prophecy began in what year? 457 B.C. How many got them all right now? Okay. I bet the one you missed was number four. That was a little bit of a trick question. Okay, your homework now is to read again chapter eight. Please read chapter five, because we want to get rid of Belshazzar, so that we can move on, okay? So all of this time, we're dealing with Babylonian kings. Now, we've got to get rid of the Babylonian kings. And invite somebody to be with you. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for being with us. We thank you for your gracious blessings. And being the God who knows the future and reveals it to us through your prophets, bless us, give us a safe journey home. In Jesus' name, amen. Shalom.